birthday? You want to watch some TV or something? Skip it. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Nothing but foul language and toilet humor. I'm disgusted and repulsed and and I can't look away. I need these things! I need these things! No way, no way, Jose. This just in, go to hell! This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to another episode of Watch Skip Plus. I am a cupcake. I'm here with my host, the Cinemasochist. Again, we are Watch Skip Plus. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to us wherever you pod. We are a movie review podcast where we will review a new theatrical or streaming film, give you our opinion on it, whether you should watch or skip it. And the plus comes from the fact that before our movie review proper, each of us will have a plus, some lifestyle thing, event, occurrence, piece of art, television, or movie that has stuck with us that uh, for the for the past week that we just can't let go of and we want to share with you wonderful listeners. Justin the Red, how yes. fare thee? Oh, he fared very well. Uh, the Cinemascus also was fed this week, uh, but oh. you guys can just go to his Instagram for that one. <laughs> he found yes. a film worse than the mean one. <laughs> I think you are speaking of Hanukkah. Yeah. Not the holiday <laughs> itself, but yes, a 2019 but a... slasher, very loosely based on the ho- holiday that all of its cleverness was in the taglines for the film, such as dreidel to the grave and making a mock poster of Halloween, the night Hebrew came home, as well as calling the killer uh, yeah, of the movie yeah. the Hana killer. But that's where it stops. Everything else is just it's abysmal. You said it was 2019. I take it it was it never saw theatrical. Outside of maybe some like horror festivals, no, 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 no. Yowzas. Okay, <laughs> could not have looked good on a big screen because it's very poor quality. You also said it's worse than the mean one, which I don't know that that was possible this year. But yeah, but then like one week later, I found something <laughs> worse. At least the mean one had a bit of a personality and s- tried to have some kind of a humor to it. A Hanukkah was just. The most abysmal type of writing. I mean, we we complain about the Christmas bloody Christmas characters. They're wonderful compared to the ones in this. And yeah. it's, it's an hour and like 47, <laughs> but it feels like it takes an eternity, which is funny because last week and this week, to tip the hand a little bit, we're covering three plus hour films. And both of those films were about double the length or close to it. And they felt like they took much quicker than the hour and 40 some and change movie did. Ouch. And with that, <laughs> Justin did tip our uh, tip his and our hat to the fact that we are reviewing Damien Chazelle's. I hope I got that right. Shazam. Um, Damien Chazelle, Chazelle's new film, Babylon. But before that, I wanted to share a little bit of news about the subject of our last podcast, which was our review of Avatar the way of water and the news I wanted to share was apparently according to deadline, it says that 
their Christmas day was a $21.5 million haul. And so in its second weekend, uh, it's poised to make about $64 million. That's down 52% from its first weekend. And it is looking like it might power to a four-day holiday, $90 million toll, could even be slightly higher. Um, and then just to put it in context, their Christmas Day, that Christmas Day weekend sort of like take. Star Wars The Force Awakens in 2015, 49.3 million. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, 32.1 in 2019. Spider-Man No Way Home, 31.6, 2021. And then Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, 25.8 million in 2016. So looks like it definitely has legs. And as they say in the industry... Never bet against Cameron. <laughs> and actually, to add a little bit more context to that, uh, it should be noted that there was a lot of bad weather throughout the Christmas weekend, uh, especially over in Seattle, where theaters were shut down. So that could have definitely played a bit of a factor into that. Who knows how much? And it should also be noted that Christmas Eve fell on a Saturday. So Christmas is one of the busiest times for the movies anyway, because every day acts like a Saturday. You always have these great legs, kids and everyone's out. The only day this year that probably didn't act like a Saturday was the Saturday because Christmas Eve is the one day it's a little bit iffy because most people are out doing their last minute shopping, maybe seeing family. Christmas Day tends to pick up, especially Christmas night. I have gone to the theater Christmas morning. It's dead. I've gone Christmas night and it's packed. Doesn't matter what movie you're seeing. A lot of times people just take that as an excuse to get out. So the fact that it's at a 52% drop with all of those caveats does show that this will probably have even, you know, really good likes. It may will probably reach the, the heights of the first movie, even if you didn't adjust for inflation. Maybe, maybe not. That was always going to be a unique situation since this is a sequel, but it's popular. It has it has really good fins, is what you mean. Ah, I see. Swimming, <laughs> swimming through that water. Okay. Also, so, uh, oh, one yeah, other thing. Uh, I know last week I said it was just a watch, um, but well, let me pull my notes out here. It is the greatest movie I have ever seen. Uh, James Cameron says, I must say this. Uh, my whole life has been building up towards Avatar The Way of Water. My life has now changed because of it. James Cameron, thank you. Uh, that totally was by me and not him. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. So uh, pluses. Justin, do you have a plus? I do. And I have what could quite possibly be the most out-of-the-box plus we're ever going to have on this show. Because I, I have a little... It. Yeah, well, it's true. Probably not. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe because I have a little, I guess you could say a little uh, life story. Uh, I call this the tale of the broken auxiliary cord. Oh. So, I mentioned Seattle and it's been frozen over there. Not as bad over here on the East Coast, but over the holidays, it was very, very, very cold. Getting right down into the negatives with the wind chill it was. And my mind was not really thinking straight. I worked all day Christmas Eve and then I was going to a friend's place after. So I just do what I normally do. You know, when I get into the car, I stick the aux cord into my phone so I can listen to some Spotify. Maybe the first song or two, everything's fine. But then it started getting all like weird and crackly. So I went to like pick up the phone, but between my hands being frozen, even with the gloves on, having the mitten versions on, I dropped the phone. And when it hit like kind of the ground, oh. the actual aux cord was so frozen cold that it just snapped and broke inside of the little phone jack no uh, yep. and i didn't oh even think about God. it too much that night but when i went to my sister's the next day for christmas 
after we did all the eating in that, uh, she went and got us tweezers. Cause I was like, do you have tweezers? Maybe we can pull this out. We were kind of struggling. My mother was able to, we thought pull it all out, but the tip of it in like some of the spot was still stuck very in, in like the very back. And yeah. unfortunately what we unintentionally did was shove that in further because when I came home Christmas Eve night, Christmas morning, I could still hear things on my phone. I oh. could not after that because it, was shoved up so hard that now the phone figured, Oh, well, there's an auxiliary cord in there. So the only t- thing I could hear on my phone was the alarm because that never goes through that. Anything else. If I pulled up TikTok, which by the way, I thought I had fixed this because when mm-hmm. it was originally jammed in, I could still hear everything because it wasn't jammed in, I guess far enough. So I opened up TikTok and the first video played, I kid you not. It's as if they knew was somebody doing sign language. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> However, Oh my story- God does have a happy ending. My <laughs> thought was like, all right, I can just take it to like a cell phone repair shop or probably Verizon themselves. But, you know, hopefully it wouldn't be too much because I'm assuming they would just take the phone apart and just pull it out. But I didn't want to have to do that. So after work today and before coming on here, I was like, all right, the reason <laughs> that we were having problem with the tweezers, my sisters was the only ones they had were the ones that you use for like pimples and like nose hairs. So not like right, the right. slightly bigger ones. So I, I went and bought a couple of them. Only one pair fit perfectly. And after... A little bit of wiggling uh, shortly before coming on here tonight. I pulled it out and I now have sound again. I do not Yay. know. I didn't put, I forgot to get a new auxiliary cord and I didn't like grab headphones to see if that'll fix. So who knows if I'm going to be able to use that jack port anymore. I can just, I guess, resort to Bluetooth, but Merry Christmas. It's that cold that shit's just breaking off into my phone now. So I, I have been hesitant to even try the phone charger that's in the car because i'm like i don't want that breaking because then i'm screwed out of using this phone no. if it, i can't charge it so now the mother hen in me has to ask you did you power down your cell phone yes, before jamming the okay 100 and actually it's funny <laughs> because my mother i even we took off like the phone case too to make it a little bit easier and i immediately i was like turn it off and then she accidentally like was holding it and turned it on and i was like oh you turned it on and i'm like look i don't even know if it'll affect the phone but i'm afraid of it shocking you you know jamming yes. metal or shit in there so we, we had to like coordinate too because i'm like make sure you don't grip and then i did it today too where i accidentally turned it on at one point which mm. thankfully it takes a little bit but i'm like all right i can kind of see where she was coming at it's hard to because it's on the right side and we're right-handed so you want to like grip it but yes that was my first thought i'm like turning this bad boy down i'm not sticking jagged please, metal or anything in this please do so <laughs> you know i had a co-worker who he has one of those uh, few charging stations where you just lay the cell phone on top of it and it charges, mm-hmm. um, you know, nothing to like plug in. It's not magnetic or anything like that. And he came into my office and he said, you know, plug this in. Are, am I am I just stupid or can I not plug this in? And I was like, what are you doing? And something similar happened like yours, except it was the reverse. So I'm probably not going to describe this very well, but the normal USB, not the USC, but the USB, it, there's kind of like a little rectangular interface. And then there's a, uh, an open space in that little, you know, the male port, right? And when you put it into the female port, it's, it's a companion sort of thing. Well, when I looked at his female port, <laughs> when, I looked at his, when I looked at his female port where there should have been a space, I think that when he last plugged it in, it must have grabbed onto one of those metal tines. So when he pulled it out, 
it pulled whatever that was forward oh. and then jammed it. So there was, so when I was literally looking at it, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how this happened. I'm like, maybe you can push it back in with like a, you know, a tweezer or like a, um, a paper clip or something. What was Fragile the resolution? technology. Oh, I have no idea. Oh. I, I, I don't know if he was able to get it to get it to work or what, but Oof. yeah, I was going to um, say, at least with mine, it was just, I wasn't, and I was really worried about the alarm clock. So that part, my nephew was like, well, that'll still work. And we tested it because, yeah, because I don't ever go through an aux. I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense. But, but yeah. then I was also, I tried out like calling my mother on it and I'm like, oh shit, if I can't even call people, <laughs> like that'll suck. So, yeah. Well, thank God that worked out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, that saves me <laughs> yeah. a trip for going to one of those cell phone repair shops and saves me a few bucks as well. And let it never be said that. God, Buddha, the higher power, the the powers that be, whatever, has a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Given the fact that, given the fact that, like, you turn on TikTok and it's a sign language person. Oh my God! I, somebody amazing. that that almost made me believe. I'm like, <laughs> if not that, whoever owns TikTok as you know somehow knew. And it's just like, oh, I couldn't stop laughing at that. Well, hopefully. Some people listening aren't conspiracy theorists. That would just add to the fact that oh, they, yeah. the Chinese are spying on us yeah. through TikTok. <laughs> but well, anyway. you know what? If they are spying on me, at least they have a sense of humor, I guess. <laughs> yeah, at least. So my plus is I am on holiday. Thank God. I am. I have a couple weeks off. I always do this every every year. I don't know if this will happen next year. Um, but I usually take the last week of December, first week of January off just to sort of like recharge and reset my brain. And my plus is that I broke open my collector's edition Game of Thrones all season eight set, basically. Um, I'll post a video maybe on our on our on our watch skip plus Instagram feed, but you've got to see this this uh collector's edition. Basically, it's a it's a big wood box. Very beautiful presentation. It says Game of Thrones on the front. On the back, it's got like the little motto, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, which is not how Cersei says it, by the way. But And then the window, it's a it's like a diorama of like dire wolves and all the sigils of the houses. And it's really, really beautiful. But when you open it, there's a leather clasp and it's got like a little, uh, the badge of the hand, the hand of the king. You take that out, you pull the leather thing back each of the seasons are in a slide. And when you pull the slide out, it's one part of the diorama. So, you know, if you were to pull them all out, it would be blank. And then if you were to slot each one in, it's a different portion oh, of it. That's really so each, cool. Each season is a little part of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful set. I think it's still available. I saw it on um, Amazon. I th- it retails at $329. I think it's on sale for like $232 or something. I got it on a sale like $170. Like, <sighs> like, Several oh, months yeah. after the last season premiered, because that was a while ago. Yeah, um, <laughs> I like the idea that that last season was so divisive and hated that they were like, "Look, this big set, half price, we, bitch, get this shit out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move these units." So I, uh, I broke that open, and Scooter and I are doing an epic Game of Thrones rewatch. So we started Friday. We are on episode two of season three. So we've been sort of like steamrolling through them. Wow. Nothing better on holiday than just sitting around watching game of thrones and i have not seen that last season uh confession so we thought that we would with the house of the dragon coming out that we would just catch up on everything watch that last season and then start house of the dragon which i think concluded its first season already i'm seeing pre-orders for the first season 
Um, but I had really forgotten how just crackling good the story is. And even though there's a million characters, it's just so engrossing and really well written and just really well done. I was amazed at how many gorgeous actors and actresses are in this. And I'm even including the sort of like harder looking, like mature UK males. Um, Cause there's some really, really like, I, I think people would characterize them as sort of gruff looking or rough looking um, actors that I just think are sexy in this Liam Cunningham, Ian Glenn, Sean Bean, uh, Joe Maul, Jerome Flynn, Michael McElhatton, who I just think is super gorgeous. Stephen Delane, who plays Stannis Baratheon. I mean, I just, all these guys are are gorgeous. But again, it's just, the story itself is so engrossing and mesmerizing. And I know that the series eventually departed from the books because our, George R.R. R. Martin couldn't write the last one quick enough, I guess. <laughs> and he was like, "I'm, you're not going to rush me. So y'all are just going to have to take off on your own. But, you know, as as a series that sort of joined the pop pop cultural zeitgeist, like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer or a Sopranos, uh, I don't think it gets any bigger or more engrossing than than the Game of Thrones. And uh, we just came across the Battle of Blackwater episode, which was directed by Neil Marshall. And um, and we have discussed before on the show about how directors may come in and, you know, uh, directors may come and make a couple movies and they have a distinct voice and then they go off and maybe do a big blockbuster or they do a Marvel. And then you're sort of like, well, where is the director's voice that I knew from before? And it's funny watching that Blackwater episode, which I think won a couple Emmys and maybe even got Neil Marshall nominated for for directing of a, a, a short form or long form television series. It has Neil Marshall written all over it. Um, in fact, the the pacing, some of the gore, the action scenes, it is also shot by his longtime DP, Sam McCurdy as well. Um, and it's weird. I think, I think Marshall and McCurdy have only done one or two episodes of Game of Thrones. And normally when on, in these type of series is when they're filming, you get a director and a DP who do two episodes back to back. And that gives pre-production and production time on the next two that some other director obviously is shooting. Um, but it's weird. They just, it, it's like they brought Neil Marshall and uh, Ben McCurdy in just for that one episode, which was very effects heavy, very battle heavy, but very gore heavy. Um, but it's, it's, it's a standout definitely in those, in those first two seasons. I don't know. I hopefully it, uh, some of our listeners can weigh in on how they like house of the dragon because I haven't seen it. But, I've heard, um, I haven't seen it, but I've heard some pretty positive things, especially from people obviously burned by the final season of Game of Thrones, which I'm curious. I, I never only watched the first couple of seasons, um, so I n- never actually saw that finale, but I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are going to be, because I feel just knowing that negative reception will probably soften the blow and maybe possibly make you appreciate maybe what they were going for. Cause especially with television shows, as we get with movies or these long form series, such as MCU, it can also be very easy to be upset because it didn't go away. You thought it would go at more. So being upset at how it actually went and, and in defense of anybody that doesn't like the game of Thrones finale, it didn't sound like that was the reasoning for most people. No. No. Even the most sound people who don't think that didn't seem to like it at all, but I'd be curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to, I'm curious to see how it's going to end up too, because, you know, when we think of uh series finales, I mean, we think about 
Bob Newhart and how he woke up and it was all a dream or even the lost season finale. I mean, it, that was, I remember that being so divisive and, and I was sort of like, actually, I kind of liked what they did. I wish it had been a little bit more, you know, action packed or what have you, but it was very emotional. The lost ending that is the JJ Abrams, ABC show. Um, but Ozark. one other thing is another one that oh. got a very negative reaction. And I did watch all that series and I'm wasn't particularly fond of the finale, but I was a little bit behind. So when I finally got to that last season, that hate had already happened. So that made me kind of soften to the blow. Cause I'm like, I see what they were going for. I don't think it quite connected, but also having that sheer, this is just awful. They've ruined a great show or whatever. I think helped me not hate that finale as much. Cause I'm like, I mean, one awful, it just maybe not, you know, somewhat what expected, un- somewhat underwhelming. I, I, there's one thing just really quick on Ozark was I felt like they tried to cram way too much in near the end of that, like just series. Cause mm. I remember the second to last episode going into the last episode. I'm like, how the hell is there only one more? Even if that last episode might've been even longer, I was still like, how, but. Actually, you know, did they know it was going to end? Ozark was going to end when they filmed it? I want to say yes in this case. Um, okay. Because it did, because as much as I make that complaint, it didn't so much feel like they just found they were get, out, they were getting canceled and trying to force it. It did still seem like they were going there because yeah. it being so overstuffed ended up being the point anyway. But I feel like that one they knew because I thought that was the big promotion going in. It's their final season. I mean, they made it to a fourth season, which on Netflix nowadays is a miracle. Yeah. Especially considering Um, it was after because they had to film all of that or at least a good chunk of it after the pandemic because there is that really bad clip that once somebody posted it, I couldn't unsee it of when they're in the showboat and they're sitting. So it's Jason Bateman. Laura Lenny next to each other, but then you can tell that because of like COVID and maybe they couldn't go back and refilm. Jason Bateman wasn't in the the scene. They must seen with her. Seen with her. They clip from elsewhere, and then he just kind of freezes there as she's talking, and it's so (laughs) awkward. And I'm like, I don't know if I would have actually noticed it because like you would have been more in tune to her, you know, aggressiveness. But once the internet pointed that out, I'm like, well, can't unsee that. Um. There's a scene like that in Top Gun Maverick where I distinctly was like, I don't think Connolly and Cruz are in the same scene together. And in um, that case, that's weird, too, because I maybe it wasn't completely done, but I, I thought that was almost wasn't that pretty much finished filming, even post-production by the time the pandemic hit. Uh, who knows? It could have been a reshoot. Um, I'd, have been, to, so. I'd have to go back and check out that scene. But OK, two more things since we've digressed just a tiny bit. Yes. One. If anybody was a fan of a show called Dollhouse by uh, <clears throat> Joss Whedon, <clears throat> um, I was a huge fan of that. And they knew that they were getting canceled and they had one last season. So their second season, they basically threw all their balls into like into the mix. And if you want to see how to really finish off a show after a lackluster first season and, and just get everything that they started, ended, and then even hope for the future... Dollhouse season two is fantastic. As much as you know, um, sort of got canceled. Um, it's it's a it's a really (laughs) it's a really great show. So people should check that out. And then two, binging Game of Thrones all the way through. I have to tell you, it's it's good because what happened when I tried to watch it first run is 
I forgot who the hell these people were. I'm like, what is this again? This place that's burned down. What does that have to do? What's the significance? And being able to binge it and sort of see it all with with not having to wait like a year, a year and a half, whatever, however the delays were, it really can. I think it really connects you to the story more. And I think we talk about how sometimes uh, this generation is growing up binging. Uh, full seasons, whereas you know, you and I grew up with network television, where you had you had no choice; you had to wait until next week to watch what happened next. And it, it, it's it's a different kind of experience when you have it that way. But at least for Game of Thrones, binging it helps to keep all of the characters straight because there's just too many. And I'm like, what's happening? Who are you? And why are you dying? I don't know. But uh, it's 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 working this time. It's connecting. So. Yeah. All right, so let's get into our movie review pop proper. We are reviewing 2022's Babylon, directed by Damien Shazam. <laughs> I'm going to call him Shazam from now on. That's what's going to happen. Well, Damien- you know what? James Gunn's going to bring him in. I'm like, look, we're going to reboot that franchise now, too. You right. want to do it? <laughs> so this is directed by uh, Damien Chazelle, young filmmaker who... Initially, in 2009, he'd come out with a movie called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which did get some notice. He did direct a short then afterwards, which was converted into a full-length second feature film called Whiplash, which was absolutely stunning. If you want to talk about a film that, I mean, just to watch these two characters develop and then sort of undermine each other and go after each other. I mean, it's, it's, it's electric. It's fantastic. Um, that of course starred Miles Teller, JK Simmons. Um, he, uh, Shazil wrote and directed that, that essentially put him on the map. And then his next film, La La Land, which was the sort of dramedy musical hybrid product starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, which caught everybody's attention and was nominated for Academy Awards and actually won six of them, including Best Performance by a Leading Actress, Best Director, I believe, and Best Achievement in Cinematography, Linus Sandgren, uh, Best uh, Achievement in Music Written for a Motion Picture, Justin Hurwitz, and then, of course, won Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures for an original song, City of the Stars, by Justin Hurwitz and the lyric lyricists Benji Pasek and Justin Paul, who would go on to do The Greatest Showman. Um, did not win Best Picture, though. It did not win Best Picture. <laughs> Can't forget that awkward moment. Yes, I would say that was most definitely an awkward moment. And then he followed that up with 2018's First Man, which I must confess I did not see. Um, unfortunately, I didn't quite have that much of an interest in seeing it. First Man was about uh, the life uh, of astronaut Neil Armstrong in the legendary space mission that led him to be the first man on the moon. I did see it. Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. How was it? It was actually really good. I think it threw a lot of people off because it's not just some inspirational. Yeah, he goes to the moon like it gets it goes into the dark elements of his life, losing his child and just I guess in a way, some similarities to Babylon on like how much of what you want from your work or your passion can also be toxic to the rest of your life. I unfortunately missed it in IMAX because I know those scenes where they're testing out the spaceship and all that are apparently amazing on it. Mm. I just saw it traditionally a couple weeks after its IMAX engagement. I will also say, though, considering how 
much of a just downbeat drama it is there's a part mm. of me that's like i don't know if i wanted to see a child's funeral in imax you know i think that would have yeah. just bummed yeah. me out even more seeing it on that gigantic screen but it, it's it's definitely uh his his least damien chazelle and i mean that in a positive way there's still elements that are mostly his but these other films including the one we're going to talk about have a very damien style to them and this one it just feels different and i well, again he also didn't write it correct no and i do no i don't recall yeah. him writing it and i'm sure also <clears throat> having to handle an actual real human being's life and account yeah there's always gonna be liberties taken but he probably took that with you know ounce of respect in that and didn't want to maybe uh, put a lot of his style in that and then he actually directed two episodes for a Netflix series, which I'm just learning about now called the Eddie about a French club owner uh, who dealing with the everyday chaos of running a live music venue in the heart of Paris that starred Andre. Um, oh, I always say Oland. I'm sorry, Holland, although maybe it's pronounced Oland. I don't know. Um, and then he, and then we come to Babylon, which is his follow-up to first man, before we get into the review proper, I just wanted to point out a couple people below the line. One of our producers is Wick Godfrey. I've mentioned him before. Basically, anything with his name in it, I'm on. Um, he has produced things like Smile, the Love Victor television series, the Mr. Mercedes um, series. He also did the Maze Runner series as a producer, helped to produce the Twilight Saga as well. So definitely knows his audience, knows what could light up the box office. Like Cameron, I would bet on Wick Godfrey. <laughs> Another <laughs> producer is actor Toby Maguire. Surprise, surprise. He also crops up in this movie uh, uh, in a short, uh, rather creepy part, which we'll get to later. Um, music is done by Justin Hurwitz, who we had mentioned before. He won an Oscar for La La Land. He's also done the music primarily for most of Chazelle's films, First Man, Whiplash, La La Land. I believe he's even been a writer He's written for episodes for Curb Your Enthusiasm, The League, um, which I never got into. I watched a couple episodes I thought was funny, but I need to revisit that. Um, and even written episodes for The Simpsons. Our cinematographer is also the previously mentioned Linus Sandgren. He is a sw Swedish cinematographer. He's actually fantastic. He lends Adam McKay's Don't Look Up, the Netflix movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. He was also the DP for No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's last Bond film. He has lensed nearly all of Damien's films, also was the DP for Joy, The 100-Foot Journey, um, and a film called Six Souls, which I actually caught on on streaming that has uh, Julianne Moore and um, Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. Yeah. Our production designer is... Florencia Martin. She's a fantastic production designer. Uh, she has worked on previous films such as Blonde, which was on Netflix with Anna de Armas. She was the production designer for Paul Thomas Anderson's much underappreciated Licorice Pizza, which is fantastic. Everybody go see it. And then she was a production designer on a film called uh, Cherry, which I don't know if anybody had actually seen that, um, but it's actually quite good. Uh, okay, our cast, by the way, is pretty, pretty phenomenal. There are a ton of really great character actors, veteran actors, and then obviously some of our, you know, buzzy stars. 
We're talking in particular about, of course, Miss Harley Quinn herself, Margot Robbie. Uh, we have Brad Pitt. Uh, Olivia Wilde is actually in here for a brief bit. A gentleman named Diego Calva is our lead. He, um, I th thought he was pretty familiar, but I think he's been mainly in foreign films, probably most notable for Narcos Mexico, which is on Netflix, and then another Spanish television series, The Inmate. So he's relative, he should be relatively new to domestic eyes. We also have Gene Smart in a really great role, Flea from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, who I was not expecting to be in this. Um, I was very surprised by his uh, rather short performance, but it's actually pretty memorable. We also have Lee Jun Lee. She's also in another of the lead roles here. People may know her most from The Exorcist Season 2. That was the Fox television show. She was also Irish Chang, Iris Chang on Quantico, if anybody ever watched that, and Dr. Karen's son on Blind Spot. So mainly a television actress. She was also in Wu Assassins and the Paramount Plus series Why Women Kill. Um, oh, and as well as Evil. So she's definitely been making the rounds on Paramount Plus Showtime shows, but she's primarily a television actress. This is one of the first times I've actually seen her. Um, I think in a big role on screen, Lucas Haas is also in this, Eric Roberts is in this. So there's a lot of notable people sort of cropping in and out of this as well. I was like, if you don't mention Eric Roberts, I'm going to walk off here. He is the <laughs> fucking man and he has a podcast appropriately called Eric Roberts is the fucking man about it. Yeah, nice. I Go never listen. knew that. I love Eric Roberts. He's so fantastic. Although I'm sure he would punch me in the face if I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Roberts, my favorite role of yours is in The Specialist. I'm sure that would get me duped out. Actually, but probably <laughs> not. Every So just to, I guess, tip the hat a little bit here, the podcast I'm referring to, good friends of the show, Doug Tilly, uh, they, he hosts it. They never, it was never in conjunction with Eric Roberts. When he found out about it, he just was like over the moon. He's apparently very, at least when it comes to movies, not very nice. I mean, this is the same oh, guy that felt legitimately bad when he found out the sound mixing in a talking cat was not good because you could just tell he's like, oh, they put hard work into it, which I don't think they did, <laughs> sir. I'm sorry. Uh, I've seen that film, but but he seems yeah. like a sweetheart, so he'd probably just be happy that you saw the specialist and like him in that. <laughs> Uh, there are some fantastic scenery chewing in the specialist by Eric Roberts, by the way. There's some um, good scenery chewing in this. <laughs> yes, there definitely is. Okay, so at, with a runtime of it was is it three? It's three hours and eight minutes. This one is definitely and budgeted at about 80 million, I believe. Uh, Justin, what are your spoiler-free thoughts on Damien Shazam Shazil's Babylon? <laughs> so going into Babylon, I had a surprising trepidation. And I say surprising because as I mentioned to Jose off air and probably anybody who wants to talk to me, I do love Damien Shazam. Uh, Whiplash is just, that's one of those few films. Every time somebody says, Oh, there's no great movies made recently, which is always a lie. I feel, but like sometimes it takes a while for you to know, this is one of those great movies. That was one of those films, much like uh, Drive, uh, Nick Swine Reference Drive, where I just immediately know, oh my God, this is fantastic. This is going to be talked about for decades, rightfully so. 
Followed up with La La Lamb, which I loved. I I adored it. A good friend of the show, William, kind of ruined it for me, though, by saying they're always looking at their feet when they're dancing. And damn you, son of a bitch. Oh, no. But I still love the film. And uh, as I mentioned, even though I don't always think of it as a Damien Chazelle film, First Man, I thought was really, really good and kind of got overlooked, unfortunately. I just think it was because, uh, I mean, it was marketing itself more as... Uh, maybe not even so much inspirational, but oh my God, you got to see the recreations of this stuff, which was great, but it kind of floored people. And it's like, yeah, no, this is going to get depressing. Also, I had Kyle Chandler, who I love as an actor, uh, but also what a dream love. Though. Oh, yeah. So yeah. all the pieces are there for me to go, oh my God, I'm going to love this. I love Brad Pitt. We, we talked about that on the show. But despite the fact that I love La La Land, which was definitely a love letter to cinema, I, I think as I've gotten a little bit older now, I'm waning a little bit on love letters to cinema. Uh, I, it's funny because I think about a decade almost at this point, the artist came out. And I remember in our community, uh, I think a Will from GGTMC himself, he didn't quite take to that. He felt the craft of it was great, but he felt that it was hollow because he thought it was just, well, that's all it is. It's a love letter. And it connected with me where I thought it overcame that. But I'm starting to kind of come around to where he was feeling with a lot of these love letters of well, you're just shooting fish in a barrel. Of course, if you make a movie about how great movies are, are film fans are inevitably, and especially the Academy, are going to fawn over you. So it's very tricky, even with something like Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans recently, which is far more personal. It's just that I have hesitation towards it. Where this surprised me is that while, yes, you can argue, and there's definite moments, and we'll get into it, that this is still a love letter to cinema this honestly i think it's just using that to make a parable or a metaphor on toxicity in any kind of area but addiction as well because film is the addiction here as well as excess but i've seen a lot of comparisons and i've made them this is boogie nights meets caligula i was even telling a friend the other day it has the excess reminds me of martin scorsese's the wolf of wall street and as you were going over his other films i don't know why that has hit me because i've been talking about whiplash a lot there's actually a lot of similarities to whiplash because those areas of putting yourself so far into your art just as you did with first man how that could be so detrimental and it is because of that that this film won me over I was on board in the beginning just because the opening 20 to 30 minutes of this is just one wild rambunctious party. I mentioned Caligula. This is basically modern Caligula set in the silent film era of the twenties. You've got penises all over the place and breasts and like we're uh, there's water sports. Like you had messaged <laughs> me, Jose, because you had told a friend that if they are going expecting something like La La Land or anything like that, they, especially right at, off the bat, they're going to be grossed out most likely. And I didn't, I mean, I only had a couple of people at my screening, but I know the few people that did go see this, apparently there are some walkouts or some people who sat through it, but were disgusted by the, the vulgarity on display in the opening. But it has a point. Maybe it's a little bit too much, but every time I thought, is this movie being too excessive or going too much? I'm like, well, no, that's the point. It has to because it is showcasing these these artists who are in love with their craft, but they're also they've fallen victim to the success that it can bring, the stardom, the drugs, the wild parties, the alcohol. And this film takes and we'll get to it more with the spoilers, but it takes a very big mood whiplash and it kind of it does it rockily. It, it 
it's almost like a roller coaster because it's not like, oh, you go up and then you hit the bottom and you're done. It's like you go up, then you go down, but then you're going to kind of go back up and down. And there are so many scenes in this movie, one in particular, where something really drastic and horrible happens. And then you're just right back to another story because it's interconnected with four different three main stories interlocking but there's also kind of a fourth one in there that definitely harkened back to to la la land just in the music department but in this case that move whiplash worked perfectly because it's representing a crash that you would have when you're doing types of drugs or any kind of an addiction and it's not necessarily the most subtle at times because you're going to have especially with a gossip columnist sometimes having to pretty much bat these characters down to size and wake them up to you know this is what the reality is but again, it's fitting because they would need that. Now, where it is a love letter and why I think it's tricking people into thinking it's a love letter is because, much like the artist, this is about the transition from silent film to talkies. And I maybe I'm wrong here. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of excess then. The whole point, especially at that end there, is I think things are always changing, yet they're staying the same. For me, I think the real reason you, he chose this outside of just being a really unique period piece, is that's the most dramatic shift I think film has ever had. The next closest would obviously be going from black and white cinematography to color, technicolor, because then the way you had to shoot films and they were presented was different. You could say stuff with 3D and all that too, but it is such a dramatic shift to go from silent film to talkies. And we don't always think of it unless you're really into acting and this film does a really great job of showing why that could be an issue because you have in especially in margot robbie's case person who kind of fell into stardom she actually is a terrific actress which she doesn't have to remember dialogue and have to remember all these steps and all of that and it's one of those things or you're even going to notice it with brad pitt and where people are struggling where They were actors, definitely theatrical that you would see on a stage play, but they got to play up the body language more, which is something I love. That's one of the reasons going back and watching silent films actually is really rewarding to me because you get a lot of more body acting, which kind of went the way of the dodo bird sometimes, it seems. Another reason why the likes of Mickey Rourke and uh, Eric Roberts are so wonderful. They know how to use their bodies. Yeah. Um, So that's why I think it's doing this more than, oh, we're just going to make a love letter. And I think any mixed messages that even I was getting in my first, you know, viewing of this, I say first viewing, I have not gone back to see it yet, but my first impressions of it, I kind of realized that that was the point. He's manipulating me. And the more I thought about this, yes, this is the inverse to La La Land, but this is really just a film version of Whiplash on a much grander scale because you have all these combustible elements coming together. And unlike those where you had two batting heads here for a while, you just have so many people throwing all their shit in there and they're just letting everything get to their head that they're not taking care of themselves. And I'll get the wrestling reference out of the way here because I'm going to have to make one. (laughs) But one of the things that really stood out to me, especially with how they handled Margot Robbie, because she's really kind of falling into this. She, much like uh, Diego's character, really loved cinema or the she loved more the stardom aspect of it he loved the actual art craft but both of them get sucked up and abused because they just want that success that they'll let they'll ignore any red flags or what have you like you would do in a bad relationship the reason i'm comparing this to wrestling is there's this belief with and would have definitely came from kids of the 80s or teens onward that once wwf now wwe became the conglomerate in wrestling. It became the Disney of professional wrestling. 
people grew up wanting to not just be wrestlers, but they wanted to go to the WWE. They wanted to compete at WrestleMania. You hear so many wrestlers say that's their dream. It doesn't matter whether on the card, they just want to compete because that's the granddaddy of them all. There are so many wrestlers, though, that crash and burn when they get there because they lose sight of themselves and what they need to do to succeed, that they're just happy to be there. So, mm. and sometimes they kind of just leave and they may come back because they, if they got let go, they might go on the independent scene and actually get that realization of, you know, really need to better yourself as opposed to just doing what you need to do to get there and then just doing what they tell you to do. But others don't. Sometimes a lot of them, they get that wake up call that as great as sometimes it seems like the back backstage scenarios of wrestling is getting better. It's always been a carny business and very much like this. There's a lot of drugs, alcohol, especially when you're on the road all the time, a lot of misery, and it's very easy to not check yourself. And this applies to a lot of sports. I mean, you have football players being told how to be financially responsible and how to handle, you know, what's going to happen after, because you're not going to be able to do this so long. And for me with wrestling, I see that a lot when it comes to WWE, because people just seem to get that short sightedness when they're there and they come out either bitter and miserable or hopefully come out on the better. And that is where I think this film succeeds, even at its three plus hours, which the biggest struggle I will give this film is the one it's always going to have. It wants to be excessive because that's what this film is about. But there was a part where I'd say maybe a third of the way, like three fourths of the way through, I had started to feel numb. And there was a mm. certain character, an actor that does appear that kind of rejuvenates things. But even then I was almost a little too tuckered out. And on reflection, I really appreciate where this went. And I don't know if I would not, necessarily say oh they should have cut this and that to make it flow smoother because i kind of think this did earn its three-hour runtime and if i'm going to compare it to avatar i was more emotionally invested and enthralled by where this was going to go than some of the story beats on that so it moved a little bit quicker than that but i do feel that that's one of the reasons this one's gotten somewhat of a mixed reaction is it has to go so headstrong with everything that even though its intention is to wear you out, that's also a negative because then if you wear me out, am I going to actually feel the effects of some of those later aspects? And we're going to get to it in the spoiler section. I will admit, I'm still not quite sure how I feel about the finale. Mm, got it. So I likened this to sort of, well, first of all, yes, I do fully believe that this is the, uh, dark matter version of la la land so whereas that film took a love story and framed it in that sort of technicolor musical kind of way and it was just it was wonderful and it was sweet even though the story the love story sort of took took a sort of a dark turn in some ways um that worked for that movie this is sort of like again it's it's the antithesis of it it is Hollywood. It is, in a way, a little bit of a love letter to Hollywood, but it's definitely much darker than that. I had termed it as Boogie Nights uh, and Chinatown as as filtered through sort of like, you know, all every weirdo sort of exploitive, odd story you've ever heard about Hollywood from the, you know, the secret orgies to, you know, drunks or uh, maybe or the fact that, you know, 
the studio systems might have hid uh, actors that were gay or lesbian. Um, I feel like when Chazelle wrote this, he was taking all of those sort of urban legends about the beginning of the Hollywood industry and then how things sort of went through with the studio system. And he wanted to build a movie around that. But I think that we often, at least on this show, I think we've talked about the fact sometimes that, you know, the the message is sometimes the medium that it comes through. And so I think you're right that it is intentionally excessive and I'm not going to say cartoonish, but it has such a high level of energy. It's so full on um, that it, in a way it can be emotionally exhausting and even visually exhausting because, you know, it doesn't let up. There's either this like excessive debauchery and then we move to something that's comedic and then we move to something that's really, really dramatic and characters going through their sort of like addictions and their power struggles or, or feeling, you know, unwanted by the system. Nobody's taking their calls. I think it's intentional that he put all of that chaos in there, but he's wrapping it around the story of the transformation of the industry, not only below the line, but above the line in moving from silent pictures to talkies. And I, I think the reason why this ultimately didn't work for me is because at three hours and eight minutes, I think that one, there could have been some judicious editing about the story itself and its presentation. Um, and then two, either show us the excess and build your story around sort of the the urban legends that we heard about the industry, you know, changing at the time and all the little backstories and the the back planning and the swindling that happened or follow this sort of like dour like sad story about people being exploited. I I just didn't know it it just didn't seem to gel for me the two of those things coming together and I think he was just a little too unfocused. I I don't think that you needed all of this to tell us that Hollywood is the type of industry that takes ingenues, that takes artists, that takes people and exploits them and builds them up and then just spits them right out when the next big shiny thing, director or actor or whatever comes. Because I think that is the story that we can all relate to, but it's it's unfortunately part of a mishmash of just too much being thrown at the screen. And when it comes to the movie love letter stuff, because again, they make it a point to say that, you know, the, uh, the Diego Calvas, Manny Torres's character, you know, he's coming from the artist side of it and wanting, he says, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a, a part of something bigger than me, a part of this artistic vision that gets presented to you, right? And I've always thought that, you know, from working in community theater, I imagine that it it is the same way on a movie, that even if you're a grip or a gaffer or you're a makeup artist or you're the performer or you're the sound guy, you're all part of this big creative vision, right? That's what we see as the viewer looking at a movie. But I think what everybody knows, if you read the trades, the trades being Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, or even if you look at some of these older stories of the industry and then how the studio system was created, I think we all know people go on power trips, right? 
A director will think, it's my show, it's my movie. Or an actress is going to say, this is my movie. How dare that they steal the scene from me or this and that. Um, and I think that's what this film is really getting at, is that there is an ideal for everybody involved for a movie and the viewer, obviously. But then the nature of the business is that you're only as good as your last picture, right? And so we have characters like Brad Pitt's, like... Um, Margot Robbie, like Manny, that go into the business, they find some success, and then all of the politics and the back dealing and things happen that they either can't square with personally, or it just spirals into this bid for power or bid for all the fun and good times while still being, you know, a, a, a rising star. But eventually, your, your time comes, and that's just unfortunately the nature of the business. And so I got a big mixed message about this because when it goes into those magical moments on set, the magical scenes that they produce of the movies, and then there's even a montage at the end that shows the power of movies and the, and the magic of movies, I got a real mixed message. Like It felt like Chazelle was trying to say to me, you know, 2001 is a beautiful movie that should be, you know, savored and treasured and saved in 35 millimeter, et cetera. But a lot of blood and pain went into making that that you don't know about. And you should know about it. And you should feel bad about what all those people did to produce good, beautiful art for you. Um, so that was just the weird mixed message that I got from this. Admittedly, admittedly, it's really well done and beautiful, and there are some magic sequences. In a way, uh, Chazelle is almost like a less vulgar Tarantino in the respect that there are scenes here that remind me of some of the scenes that Tarantino has done, where we know we shouldn't be lingering this long in a scene, but goddammit, it's super entertaining and it's wonderful. And there's a lot of that going on here. It just didn't quite work for me. I do want to get back to the the production values before we go over to the spoiler section. But before that, I, I think where we differed was I didn't see the mixed message. I mean, I felt it being mixed was the message because I didn't see this as respect the art and the craft and going into that and all the labor of love. I took that to be, especially when we get to that montage, and we'll talk about that in the spoiler section, as this is their drug and to, to your point, when you said, and we've seen it with uh, Manny's character of, I want this, I want this, I need it to be this way. When you become so unrealistic about anything, no matter how passionate you are, just like in Whiplash, that can be your downfall. So I, I will agree, maybe some of the spots that are about like, well, you know, Hollywood chews you up and spits you out, the toxicity of show business, it's, it's a bit pat. Uh, I mean, as much as I say it's easy to shoot fish in a barrel with, the beauty of filmmaking it's just as easy to say well it's fucking destructive because we've all been we've all seen that we've all been there it's taking a very soft blow where i feel this one takes a really hard strike though is having this nuance to show that while the business is definitely toxic and all that i feel that all of our central characters uh margot Rob robbie manny as well as brad pitt all three of them are victims of their own selves. The only character in this that I will say does produce the mixed message, and I know why he's there, um, and I'm forgetting his name, but it is the uh, 
jazz performer. I think he was a trumpet player. I cannot. Sydney Palmer. Of, thank you. Played Sydney by Yovan Adepo. Thank you. Um, those moments. I mean, there's a moment where it's very heartbreaking where not only is his art being mangled, but now even his identity, because I don't think I've ever saw even thought of this before, but he had to wear blackface as a black gentleman because he was told it wasn't, he wasn't black enough for the scene that they were trying to film in black and white and how emotionally just destructive that was. And as its own scene that works, the reason I think that is where some of the mixed messaging is coming in is that all of that really does just come down to, this is how toxic the show business is and how, you know, other people's passion can drive those who are artists. But because compared to the other three, I don't feel he ever was presented as somebody who let the success get to him. He was always the most level headed up until that moment. That part, I will say did falter for me, even though isolated, I think like somehow you'd extract all that, make a short film out of it. I think it would be great. Maybe a little bit too evocative of La La Land and some of the music, but great nonetheless. But everything else, I feel the reason it worked was because it was nuanced where it seemed like it was unfocused, which I mean, again, was probably intentional because these people are unfocused, but I feel there was a smart focus. And I really want to see this again to, to see if I'm correct in thinking that these little domino pieces, they were actually orchestrated to make it seem like they were unfocused, but they actually weren't. And it's really just about how these people who are so addicted that, that they cannot focus and they're letting what is so beautiful about filmmaking become poisonous, not just because they're allowing other people to do it, but they unintentionally are allowing it by just becoming too engrossed. So it's weird. I think I think we're actually on the same page in some ways, <laughs> which is weird, which is kind of weird. Um, but I think we I think you and I are on opposite ends about what we liked about the yeah. what we liked about the film. And and when I when I mentioned that I wish he just would have focused, there are two versions of this film that I'm kind of seeing that are just thrown together. Um, and I'll probably be horrible at articulating this now. I'll be better in the spoiler section. But if the movie were simply just about the chaos of filmmaking and the chaos of technology, not the chaos of technology, the advent of technology making an already chaotic process even more chaotic. If he stuck with just that, it would have been engrossing and wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. Or if he just stuck with this story about how the industry unfortunately takes artists, takes tortured artists, tortures them even more, and then spits them out, right? Within this change of technology that unfortunately creates an a studio and film ecosystem that works against all of the players. I think that was another big message that they came out with to that he came out with towards the end of this was that the when the industry moved from silence to talkies and suddenly there was more on the line than just your image because they needed they needed to hear the line delivery. They had to be pulled in by that. It created its own weird ecosystem of like well, there's this gossip woman and we're going to invite her in and then we're going to feed her these little things so that we can destroy this star and bring this person up or bring this director up. If he had stuck with just that rather than throwing in all these admittedly fun and sort of interesting sequences about the chaos of filmmaking and how that changed when it went to talkies, I just feel like he should have picked one or the other. It was just too schizophrenic and we would have had a shorter film that would have... <laughs> 
that would have, uh, I think, focused the message a little bit more. Says the person who watched Morbius five times. I, I digress. I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Uh, so I actually do think that you and I are on the same page, just liking things differently. Because as I'm listening to, I'm thinking, well, those two elements you know, needed to go together because that was where the compliment was. But I'm also understanding, and I know we're going to get much better with articulation when it comes to the <laughs> section, there are elements from both of those that even if it's the point that they are supposed to be, like you said, schizophrenic together, it does result in both of them giving more of a lukewarm response in certain aspects. I mean, without going too deep into it, the gossip columnist does, unfortunately, for the most part, feel like that, where that was so aggressively about talking about the machinations of, like you had mentioned, the new technology on top of everything else, just as I'm feeling the same way with uh, the jazz performer. And those elements, and there's, again, I don't want to tip our hand here, but well, I can say it. When Toby Maguire appears isolated, it's great. But by that point, maybe it didn't need to exist in this film because it, it's closer to the back half yet. It's going back to the manic wackiness of the opening, which again, probably the point, but it's, it's, it's really hard to pull this off when you're a three hour film. I think that's the yeah. biggest, that is the biggest struggle. And even though I actually felt for the most part that this did move well, and I don't know if I'd cut too much out of it, you could probably, if I, you know, had to be like you said, judicious editing, you probably still get this to two and a half hours so it's still a nice length and still feels excessive, but still, but is a little bit tighter. And I don't know if I would, I don't want to cut the jazz singer out completely because I feel like he has good impact. And I like the fact that they kind of let it in the background, but some of these, I have to wait until we get to the spoiler section to really articulate yeah. why they were so, why they didn't work as well. And it does pull the film back from being fantastic. I mean, compare this is probably on par with first man, uh, that one may be even a little bit better, but comparative, if we had to do the comparison sakes, it is step below whiplash in La La Land. And I think it's because those two did have more focus on just a few characters. And even though we really only have the three main like leads and then maybe the fourth there, there are so many other people at play here in so many sequences to your point that I can see where you were coming from, where some of those scenes probably do just go on too long, even if it's providing the point it's also a matter of well it's just funny actually you know what you bring that up it, it's kind of my issue with quentin tarantino lately even though i've enjoyed his films both django unchained and once upon a time in hollywood and even the hateful eight even though i think i like that a lot more than most people do but they have sequences that go on for too long because he thinks they're funny. There's the scene in Django Unchained with the 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 clan scene that I just thought dragged on for way too long because he thought it was funny. And yes, it made me laugh and it made my entire crowd that I saw it with laugh. But after a while, I'm like, this is kind of killing your pacing and does it really need to exist? So I can see where you're. I think we are very much on the same page, and this is just a matter of it connected for one of us way more than it probably did for the other, which is why yeah. art is wonderful. It is. All right. So I guess we said everything we can. Let's do production real quick because oh, yeah, I know sure. we're going to touch upon it more in uh, the spoiler section, but I think without even going into spoilers, my God, is this film edited in the sound design? It's just immaculate. Uh, I know. Like, you know, so that- if me, if, if me saying, 
it, it almost sounds like I'm saying it wasn't executed well enough. Let me let me just be clear. This is an amazing movie visually, and it's well acted. It's it's fantastic to get in your eyeballs. Um, I just think that there was a lack of focus in the presentation of the story and the pacing, um, I think is it, where your issue is really coming from too. And, you know, honestly, it was, it was for me, it was a quick three hours and eight minutes. But when I look back and I think about what they, what I think the film was trying to say, it did not need three hours and eight minutes on it, but yeah, but the production design from that opening, from that opening party, I mean, they're, there isn't a title card until like 35 minutes in, which I think is kind of fun. Oh right? yeah. Like, have you seen a, that lately? I was going to say there was a couple of movies and good friend of the show. Shane will be able to bring it up that there was a couple like indie films where it was like their title card didn't come in until like an hour into the film or close to the end. And of course now I'm like slipping the mind, but like it's almost having a renaissance of having that. Cause it happens once in a blue moon. I mean, there yeah. was, I think I'll always remember there was a movie, I think it was Hell Driver, which is one of those Gonzo mid 2000s Japanese, like live action mangas, like your meatball machines and all that. And like, it's yeah. so bonkers. And then it's like an hour in, it's like Hell Driver and you think we're done. And then it's, I mean, that was a joke. I heard the people behind me said when the title card came up, I was like, oh, wow, the movie's over already. Like I could tell <laughs> they knew it wasn't, they were just joking, but like, it is, yes. that it, it hits you where you're like, oh yeah, shit. We didn't actually get a title card yet. Cause we just got thrust into this madness. I, I love it when the title card comes really, really super late. I love that. I love that. Um, the other, the other kind of thing I like is when they sneak in the title of the film via the production. So I, I can't think of anything off the, off the top of my head, but like, let's just say the movie starts and then like 10 minutes into it, uh, an actor walks by and there's maybe like a cargo box and stamped on it is the title of the movie. Like, I like it when they sneak in stuff like that versus an actual credit, uh, or title card. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Justin. What's your spoiler free verdict of Damien Shazam Shazil's Babylon? I'm going to say this is a watch, a very solid watch. I don't know if on this first viewing, I'm going to get to the hard watch just yet. It's teetering on that, but I do feel I need to see this again to really get a grip on some of my lingering issues. But I think, especially if you just want to see something that is immaculate in its sound design, editing, performances, all of that there is no one of the better films this year. I mean, the, it might still lose out to all, all quiet on the Western front, just because that sound design was very haunting, but man, there's no way this thing's not getting at least nominated for sound design and all that. Cause I can't stop gushing over just how well they edited all of that in here. Uh, and I, yeah, I was 100% on board with this seemingly expected tale of both love letter to cinema but also the toxicity but being kind of coy with it in both its pacing its structure how it's kind of messing with you how it feels unfocused but it isn't um so yeah i think it's a watch even at three hours and eight minutes i mean I, that was a test even for me going in it always is i try to be open-minded about lengths but once you once you hit that three hour mark you're like all right oh that's a, it's a long time to be sitting with one product but it had me there hook line and sinker so since I'm bald, I'm going to be the Siskel of the pair. And I'm going to say, <laughs> and I'm going to say, messing with us, just a mess. <laughs> that was Babylon. more Gene Shallot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, Damien Chazelle's Babylon is a skip for me. And I, I know, I know I'm going to regret saying it's a skip because 
I can absolutely see this film five or seven years from now, even 10 years from now, being revered much more and, and maybe even respected. But for now, for me, with, with just a first viewing, unfortunately, it's a skip. And I don't know, maybe when uh, Troy and Brad, if you're listening to this, maybe when you do this film on Not a Bomb, because unfortunately, it oh, is this, bombing. Yeah, it is, is an bombing 80, it, it's an $80 million budgeted film with, well, there was hardly any advertising. Maybe that's, maybe that's why there's no Not advertising. Just that, but, but there was a decent amount of advertising that I saw, at least from the some of the screenings I've gone to. But the problem with it, and I, every single time I've seen the trailer for it, I've heard somebody say, well, what's it about? Because it's just, it's very yes. much that opening scene. where It looks like just, Moulin Rouge. Yeah, it basically. <laughs> right. And for a lot of people, like they are just going to see. So it's just like, oh, the fun of excess or whatever. And I just think that people aren't going to rush out to see that. And I know I used in a slight defense of Avatar's second weekend, some of the, the weather. I, you that didn't help it. it. You can't. It didn't help it, but you can't use that excuse, Babylon. I can tell right now with the puny as a opening as you had, you wouldn't have had just a little bit more. Probably, I feel like that's. I mean, maybe I'll be proven wrong, and somehow this thing will have legs, but I highly doubt it. And it's also well, like a ahead. victim of being three hours, and unlike Avatar and some of your Marvel blockbusters or any of the big films, where yeah, you may be long, but you can get in all those show times because you can eat up all those screens. You are going to be struggling for showtimes, Babylon, <laughs> after next weekend. Yeah, unfortunately. And so, so like I said, maybe Troy and Brad, when you when you do this about eight months from now, ten months from now, or at the end <laughs> of next year, um, bring me bring us back on, and I may actually change my. I can see myself changing my opinion of this, but unfortunately, it, it's a skip. It's too it's too schizophrenic. The tone just wildly vacillates. Love that. <laughs> Love that word. Uh, a little, a little too much for me. And you know, again, without the advertising, like, like I said, this project was steeped in so much secrecy. They were keeping the plot under wraps. All I ever read in the trades were who was going to be in it and who was going to have a small role in it and this and that. And I, it worked against it, unfortunately, because I, I don't think you, from the previews you even know really what you're in for, and it is quite a doozy what what you are in for, especially those opening moments. And I just have to say, I read that Damien Chazelle has a like a first look deal with a studio or whatever. I hate to say this, I walked out of this movie thinking to myself, if I was a studio exec at that studio, I would revoke his first look deal. I'm sorry, based on this picture, I would be like. I don't think we can trust him. I know that feels terrible. I'm so sorry, Shazam. <laughs> this is why they won't let me uh, run a studio because I'm like, hell yeah, give him what's he want? He wants to remake Caligula. Hell yeah. This is why I never became a formal movie critic because I would probably be like Siskel and give out an actor's phone number and say, you should call this actor and, and <laughs> get your money back. Uh, what well, well you know what hold up that he went further than that he flat no, out know. said harass some of these people so you're not that i know and i say and this he gave somebody, out he gave out the actor's address so. yeah I, I say this to somebody who greatly enjoys and appreciates what cisco and ebert did but they had some shitty tendencies they certainly had some shitty tendencies okay so if you haven't seen damien chazelle's babylon you're gonna want to turn us off because I'm going to spoil the Chazelle out of it in three, two, one. Okay. First of all, an elephant shits on somebody's head. Okay. 
And that's the first opening <laughs> 10 minutes. Oh, and man. then, and then in this party, we have, by the way, her name is Phoebe Tonkin. She was on the secret circle on the CW. And then I think I want to say the originals or uh, the vampire diary spinoff. But anyway, Phoebe Tonkin, Australian actress, she's gorgeous. She's pissing all over this big fat guy. There's cocaine everywhere. There's full frontal nudity. There's dicks. There's a wine bottle going up a man's ass. I mean, I, I was like, what are we watching? Um, but I have to say, with its whole like touch of evil, like one shot intro to like the party and everything, it's some interesting, it's some good filmmaking. But like I said, it's just so jarring to see that opening and that party and everything that's going on in there. It's crazy. And it's funny you bring that because I remember when I saw the elephant shitting and truth be told, folks, I, uh, I think most people probably would. But when it comes to like fecal matter jokes, like actually seeing it or vomit, like if you imply it, it's hilarious. Dumb and dumber. One of the funniest scenes of all time is him shitting oh, yeah. in the toilet. But once you start seeing it, I remember the, the American remake of Death at a Funeral had them. His hand gets stuck and he pulls it out. And you see the shit. That just grosses me out, but it took it caught me off guard so much here that it kind of was just in a weird way instantly gripped me. And then what pulled me in and kind of made me go, All right, I'm in with this is you're seeing all this crazy shit, and I'm definitely like getting engrossed by it. But as it's going on, I'm starting to realize I, I'm going back to it again. Like, dear lord, the sound mixing and editing is great on this, it, it sneaks up on you because you're so entranced by all the bizarre shit and the water sports and the, the guy acting yeah. like a child and all this people dying, the guy getting his well, I think it happens later, but when he gets his head stuck in the toilet, um, all of this wacky shit, but like just hearing, I brought this up with the menu when you hear stuff in the background. Uh, but it never like suffocates or infiltrates the foreground, but it makes you feel like you're immersed. That is so hard to pull off. And this film just does it over and over again. So tremendously that I was just kind of caught. I'm like, okay, this is fucking weird, but I'm, I'm all for this. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah. That even if the visuals are strong, the cinematic artistry with which he puts together not only that sequence, but as you said, a ton of other sequences. I'm thinking of the battlefield stuff with, by the way, was that director Spike Jones? I think it was because there's a okay. lot of people in this. Cause I honestly, I so much, this is a detriment to this film. Maybe I forgot, or there was so much in this film that I forgot that flea was in this. And I started laughing too. Cause yeah. when you mentioned that I didn't even bring it up to my friends. Cause I forget why we brought up. Flea. Oh, I know why we brought up flea because he, he voiced uh, a character named Donnie on the wild thornberries. And that character just goes, blah, 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 blah. it's like a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. And that's how I talk to shadow. Sometimes I'll just go, please add that to our um, opening song. <laughs> Um, you going blah? <laughs> no, but like I can't. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I came out of nowhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, but to your point, when you mentioned, I was like, shit, he was in this. So I think you might be right because I think I remember. Because I almost got like a John Landis vibe of like, well, now you're just seeing directors that only us film fans are, you know, right. recognize. I, I mean, I swear it was Spike Jones, but I don't think I saw his name anywhere. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, but it would have popped up most likely I need to be because I'm like, if it I didn't guess. pop up in the credits, but uh, let me see quick. And then Jeff, uh, the actor's name is Jeff Garland, but he he plays, uh, I think the name is 
like Don Wallach or something like that. He's like the big wig, but he looks and reminds me of Weinstein. So I'm thinking DW Weinstein. I'm like, Ugh. yeah, anyway, that one um, I thought was definite. And I did just look, he is in the cast on IMDb. Oh. So that was Spike Jones. Oh, he's such a cutie. I love him. I, uh, I leaned over to Scooter and I was like, do you know what that is? It's Spike Jones. And he goes, who's Spike Jones? I'm like, never mind. Um, but yeah, the sequences are d- like the cinematic artistry. I mean, he, He's a great director. Damien is a great director. I just think he was so unfocused in this, though. And by the way, I want to make one point about there's a the the scene that I loved in here. The choreography is by Mandy Moore, by the way, not the pop singer who was in NBC's This Is Us. I actually thought it was. I was like, okay, wow, what an interesting choice. (laughs) No, no, no. There is another Mandy Moore who is a choreographer. But the choreography in this is just, it's fantastic. I mean, from the Hollywood scenes to even just opening dancing and stuff. But there is a scene where um, Margot Robbie, unfortunately, she's high on cocaine, but there's a scene where she goes into the center of the dance floor. I know you're, I know, you know, which one, what scene mm-hmm. I'm talking about in the beginning, she goes to the center of the dance floor and she's just sort of standing there. And then she just goes wild with her dancing. Um, and then everybody just kind of like falls into her vibe and her energy and celebrates that people always ask me all the time. They're like, you know, what does it feel like when you're performing or like dancing or whatever? And I'm like, that scene encapsulates what it feels like to just let loose and dance and perform and like do stuff. Now, granted, I'm not high like she is. Okay. Just she snorted a life. mountain of cocaine. <laughs> right. Just high on life. She snorted a mountain of cocaine. Um, and I don't know if this just says something to me about my sensibilities and what I want to spend my time watching, but like the, um, I know this is going to sound very prudish coming from somebody who wants to see erect penises on the screen, but I just, all the drug use was just, it was too much for me. I was like, ah, okay, I get the point, right? I don't need, I don't need every other person jamming stuff up their nose to tell me that, you know, the Hollywood industry was laced with drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. So we were talking before about how I think that Chazelle took a lot of like the, the underground stories about what was happening within the studio ways of funding the studio and what was happening with actors and how things were perceived. And I, I think that is why we have the story about the jazz singer, who's a person of color. And we have the story about the Asian woman who is a lesbian who gets marginalized because the studio is, you know, is like, you know, we can't have that kind of person in our films. And then she sort of gets let go of her contract. But I think their stories are just as important as Manny's and Margot Robbie's because it's, again, it's it's shining a light on how Hollywood in some ways is, is very insular in the respect that you can go to a party and you can know that this person is a lesbian and does all this drugs and, and has sex with people and pisses on people and this and that. But when it comes to business it's either going to work for the image of the studio and selling movies and getting seat, uh, butts and seats or it's not. And I, I, again, I think that was why you have those stories. Um, going back to the jazz singer and, and the fact that with technology, he had to darken his face because cinematography wise in black and white, he would have looked much, much lighter, almost as the DP says, white standing next to the other people, right? And ultimately, it's his 
morals that drove him out of that system. And when we see him later playing at the club to just 20 people versus what he was used to, right? Performing at these parties, doing a movie, and then doing live performances, I don't get the sense that he's ultimately happy, but that he couldn't be in that system, right? And take all of that money and be prominent like that and be happy. So he chooses the next alternative. This reminds me of a story. I won't say who the actress or who the cinematographer is, but there was a actress who gave an anecdote about how as an African-American actress, she was on a shoot and the DP had no idea how to shoot people of color. And believe it or not, there is there is uh, an art to doing that. Paul Schrader in his commentary for the film Blue Collar talks about how Yafat Kodo is so dark skinned that he couldn't put him with certain actors or he couldn't put him in certain scenes unless the lighting was different because next to Harvey Keitel on film, it just, he would have washed out Harvey or what have you. Um, and that's a real thing. And, and the thing is, is it's, it's played here in a technical aspect. And I'm glad that it was done that way because it doesn't come off as like them being racist. It comes off as, this is the technology and we have to sell it this way. And this is the unfortunate, unhappy solution. Right. And, and I, I think that they do that by showing us the other instance where Roby has to hit her marks and she has to stand right under that microphone because it's got to grab her. And I liked those aspects of it. I, I, you know, when I tell you that the, those scenes about the chaos of making movies and then how sound and all of that changed everything, that's a great movie all on its own, even without the drama of these characters being, you know, used and spit up by the industry. And that's why I'm saying that the movie is so unfocused because both sides of that are so overwhelming in some ways, the way that they present it, that the two of those stories back to back, it's, it's too much. It's they kind it, of it's cancel each other out. Much. Yeah. And and then to go back with the the Asian woman, a person of, it's it's interesting that she's not only a person of color, but that she's also a lesbian as well. Just interesting to me that that's how they chose to present this story. But obviously, the the progenitor of this is our Rock Hudsons or our um, other female leads who were likely lesbians back then. But everybody knew about it, but nobody could say it. And if it got out in the gossip columns. You were done as a studio actor, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's why he brought that up as well. Yeah, um, it was I know with like Rock Hudson, it was still a matter of it was like a, a horribly kept secret, but it was one that still, you know, for him probably felt de demoralizing and dehumanizing. But I think of uh, hearing stories about I'm going to call another podcaster here, uh, Doc Dazam from Silver and Gold. I remember he brought that up that his mother like. He's like, she knew that he was gay, but she was just like putting her head in the sand because she didn't like that and was opposed to it. Or maybe she doesn't like it because, you know, she liked him and it's like, oh, I can't have him now. Whatever the case may be. I just remember at that time he was saying it was just like the you pretend like it didn't exist, you know. Right. Don't ask, don't right. tell. And I think that's where, you know, they're trying to get at with this. And you are right. You were much more articulate now that we got to be a little bit 
more open with our thoughts on some of these twists and turns. And I think you just unintentionally explained maybe my struggles with the jazz singer character, because when you brought up the, the Asian lesbian and it feels terrible and I got to make sure I'm wording this correctly, because I, this is the point, because this is a film about, you know, marginalizing others and being very insular, the way to make those message, that message work. And why I think it had more of an impact with the Asian lesbian is because even though she's there, she definitely feels like an afterthought a lot. And that's the commentary. He yeah. struggles a bit with the jazz singer, in my opinion, just because he starts to become like the almost the next leading role in this film. Like you almost feel like he's going to overtake. And I don't want to say you need to marginalize the person, but if that's going to be the commentary, you almost felt like you outside of maybe that scene with him being told about like putting on the makeup. Maybe some other stuff, him constantly talking with Manny, even though I know some of those struggles were also supposed to be Manny as a minority, overlooking somebody else's struggles after initially helping them out. I don't know. It's it's tough because I don't want to say you just want to marginalize these people, but I feel like the when the point where that really hits home is when you all intentionally have to. And when, to your point, when you're saying things are canceling out, I think the reason... Uh, Diego's not Diego's character. I'm sorry. The jazz singer's character gets almost canceled out for me is because they almost tried to give him too much of a focus. And that just didn't seem apt compared to everything else in this film. And it's actually, you had texted me after seeing this, we talked a little bit um, about the female director. Cause you said, I probably won't do the research, but I, I don't believe that, you know, at that time period, females were directing, but you thought that was probably a point that he was trying to make. And I agreed with you. And I had thought, and this is why I want to see it again. I had thought she was just an assistant director because the first time we really see her was on the set of basically it was kind of like a, a Ben-Hur type film. I can't remember the director that they were showcasing in that, um, the name of him. Uh, oh my God. Was it Otto Preminger? Was that who it was supposed to be? I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Otto Preminger, but I thought, cause it was this big epic that they were filming and they had to do it with the right daylight, but she was shooting the scenes with Margot over in the bar scene. I just thought she was shooting different scenes in the film, but there's a moment later on where she's filming something. And I think even when you see the ticker that it doesn't say assistant director, it just says director, her name. Yeah. But I'm bringing that up because I actually feel regardless of what his message was there, the fact that we thought that like, would that have been at the time? Or was that the message? I thought much like with uh, the Asian lesbian, since it was almost more in the background and it just existed as opposed to being made almost a focal point, made its message more impactful as opposed to with the, the jazz singer and almost felt a little too overwrought. Mm, yeah. No, no, I can talk. I, I can see that. And, and when I texted you about, the fact that maybe it's, you know, anachronistic, the fact that there was a female director at this time, it, it occurred to me that maybe all of this and the reason why it opens with that sort of Bacnalian kind of party um, that has shades of those whisperings of like, you know, these orgy parties, or whatever, where they found starlets, stuff like that, um, who are the next big stars that's always been whispered about in Hollywood and written about in books that maybe all of this is almost like a fantasy world, like a, a, a fantasy alternate version of Hollywood, because God knows they weren't, they weren't bringing up Hispanic people um, mm -hmm. to be directors and, and movie executives. Yeah. Um, and so maybe I'm taking too seriously something that's supposed to just be sort of a, a, a fable esque uh, commentary on 
the Holly on Hollywood industry and how, as you said, you know, the more, the more things change, the more things stay the same. But even if all of this is just in sort of like a hype, hyper realistic sort of like fantasy Hollywood setting, I still think it's, it's too much of too much of too much, you know, um, back to Manny and the jazz singer in a way, just like, just like Margot Robbie's character. Um, I hate to say this, but they were the help in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Because at the party, he's kind of like managing the wait staff. And obviously the jazz player is playing with a band providing the music for the party, but they're the help that kind of got elevated to a certain stature. So he joined Manny joins the movie system and he becomes almost like an executive creative director, director, right? And then the jazz singer becomes a star and they're suddenly looking at it from the other side of the table from what they normally were. Um, just like Margot Robbie, you know, she goes on and on about how like, I'm a star, I'm this, I'm that or whatever. But if you think about it, she literally was at the right place at the right time to get that role. Mm -hmm. But in, in her favor, she performed really, really well. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, you got the shot by chance, but her talent took her to the next level. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it, but that's, in a way, that's kind of how Hollywood works, right? I mean, that's how hear those stories. Works. We hear those stories all the time about how you know Charlize Theron came came to L.A. with nothing, and she cursed out the bank teller because they wouldn't cash her check, and there was some hold on her account. She cursed the person out, and standing behind her was like a a a, a talent agent who was like, "I think you're amazing. You should be in movies." And that's how she got signed, you know. So it's, you know, these things happen. They're like Hollywood lore, Hollywood stories. And I guess maybe, you know, it is a whole fantasy way of, of presenting everything. But again, I got that crazy mixed message at the end when we get the montage of Mm -hmm. technology and color and, and, uh, you know, it starts out, it's almost like, uh, was that movie Robert Zemeckis's contact, you know how it starts like mm-hmm. with the little thing. And then you get this zoom in through the universe back onto earth. It was sort of like that same thing. Like you, you see all these weird chemicals mixing and these colors, and then it becomes all these images. There's like to Terminator in 2001 and all of that. And Manny's sitting there crying. And then the camera pans to this audience and everybody's just enraptured. And there's people of all ages and they're just soaking it in. But after all we've seen, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that all of that stuff that's on the screen, like there were Manny's and there were Margot Robies and there were people who went through a ton of shit and pain and maybe lost their careers or went crazy or got addicted to drugs and died. That's what made all of that. That's that's the mixed message I got because it's it's I don't know. Yeah, it, I didn't. It was just too much. There's too much I, up on the wall. <laughs> that was where I, I did not like that. And I'm still wrestling with it because I'm trying to figure out again, is, is it the point to make me, you know, feel this way? Because I'm saying all the other excessiveness in the film worked because even when it felt like it wasn't supposed to, it was exhausting me. That was the point. And yet I get to this and I just felt like it one, I thought it was way too on the nose, showing all the clips in that. I think it would have just been as impactful just seeing Manny's reaction without cutting back to all this clip show of everything. I think that just too much in my opinion. And, and ah, 
because yeah, it was I, I could too still, precious. Yeah, it was way too, too precious. precious. And of course, and I'm sure they probably thought of it because I thought of it as, oh, you showed a clip for the first Avatar, fitting because you're competing against the sequel now. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was right there with you. I was right there but, with you. But then there's the part. I mean, it's like I could still look at this and definitely see your point of view when you were getting that mixed message of you need to respect the the art and the craft that went into this because it destroyed at this point, I'm sorry, Edward James almost his life. Cause when he came back and this is like in the fifties now, I thought he looked like Edward James almost with that makeup <laughs> on. I thought I was like, Oh, this is going to stand and deliver. <laughs> it was kind well, of, I had to laugh. I, I had to laugh. I told, I told uh, scooter. I was like, gee, when they age, you know, uh, D- I think his name is Diego Calvis. I'm like, you know, their idea of aging Diego Calvis is to give him really dark circles under his eyes and add, like pits to his face yeah. and i'm like come on <laughs> exactly it was, it was again another one that was probably too excessive and exaggerated but i still i get that part but there's still a part of me that thinks because that's where i struggled the most was i have this feeling of it's about addiction and all that but then this one is 100 love letter to cinema or even the hatred but i'm like but you could still look at it as that addiction because now he's seeing this drug that he had gotten away from for like decades because he i think he went down i think he went to mexico uh, to avoid, uh, I don't think it was the cops. I think it was what uh, the drug cartels. Well, it's Toby Maguire. We'll get back to him. But I think that was like he was yeah. part of like the drug I, cartel mafia. It gets all over the place. But he does. I would like to go back skin. to that scene. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We need to. So you could still look at that as you can look at it as a multitude of ways. This love letter to cinema that he still created a scene that was beautiful, and the thing that he thought he lost, he still got to play a part of. You can see he's just a cog in the system and that he didn't really make a difference in his mind. Uh, you could see it as he's seeing his addiction and he's facing what he used to have and, you know, having to overcome that same as when somebody might go back to if the guy came out of prison and they go visit it decades later on a tour or something and mess with them. So it, I don't, it sounds when I spell it out that way, that it's really great because it's giving me all these feelings. But man, when I was watching it isolated, like if you just put this up on YouTube, I'm like, that's a great edit of all these scenes together. And like you said, with the colors, but after all of this, I just thought to end on that, especially because we were really getting to a spot by this point. I, there was way too much. Cause this was after the Toby McGuire stuff, which we'll get right back to. And I was just like, I was starting to get restless and it wasn't because it was a three hour movie. It was because you had so much going on that even I was like, Okay, let's tap out here because we didn't even touch upon this, but I'd say maybe a good half hour before this, if not, uh, Brad Pitt's character shoots himself. And I liked the mood whiplash of that scene, kind of the lead into it is somewhat sad, but you still have the the, uh, trippy music and all that. And then when he does that, you just go, it lingers for like a few seconds and it goes back to Manny and Margot Robbie's, you know, their stuff. And it, it's like, well, what? I don't even get to digest this. And I'm like, I like the fact that I don't like, that's how shocking yeah. it is. But there is a part of me that thinks you can only go on for so much longer with the rest of those characters until moments just start to dissipate. And I felt like it was hitting there. And I think they thought that this, this clip show was this great cap to all of this. And for me, it just made me go, mm, I, it didn't satisfy me. I, yeah, it was just I too think, much. I think the reason well, first of all, I think the reason why that's there and why Manny's crying is because arguably out of all the characters that were following, well, no, he's not the only one who experiences this. But anyway, I'm saying he's one of the he's one of the few characters that saw it go from silent to black and white talkies to actual color, mm-hmm. like in his generation. And I understand why that's there, but we didn't need the montage. We could have gotten a scene of 
I don't know, no, the graduate, didn't. right? Yeah. Or something. Well, what they did originally when he and just saw singing in the rain and something else. That's all we needed. Right. We didn't need the montage. Not just that, because yeah, it, it, to your point, this is almost an anachronistic fantasy. But like we know for a fact he's not sitting there watching this montage. It's for us. So I'm like right. that was the other problem. Is like it's too much wink, wink, nudge, nudge to us. Where I'm like, we're well, not going too far with this fantasy, and you're actually taking me out of this. And yeah. and I think it also comes down to that part where I'm getting to an area where yeah, if you're going to show me why we love f- cinema and all the changing aspects of it, you're shooting fish in a barrel, you know? And, right. and also, you know why I love cinema? Because those moments were moments that didn't remind me that there were moments, you know, they're not saying yeah. they didn't stop and go, by the way, isn't this great that we're making this? I'm like, no, you just made it. And it was great on its own. <laughs> so actually going, going back to the cast though, I thank you for bringing up Brad Pitt. Um, I just thought he was fantastic in oh, this. So good. Um, you know, he's he's never for me anyway. In a lot of the stuff that I've seen for him, he he is the strong, silent type who can definitely bring it out with emotion when he needs to. I've never thought of Brad Pitt on the level of say a Brando, right? But he's a good, solid actor, and he's really, really good in this, and he's very, very good at what his character goes through, which is, you know, he knows, he knows his star is on, on the rise. He knows he's probably not going to make another picture. He goes through that awful, awful humiliation of going to the theater and seeing that one scene that his wife was like, well, this is how you should deliver it. And then he doesn't. Right. And then he, and then the way he delivers it, all the people in the audience are laughing at him. Um, And then he, you know, commits suicide, which by the way, um, the only reason why that for me that scene felt m- maybe a little bit uh, a little tough to watch is you know we recently lost Jason David Frank the the Green Ranger and yeah. it had come out that he and his wife um, had separated but that they were going to come back together and that they were having a good night together they went out and they had this party and they did all this stuff. And she said something along the lines of like, he asked me to wait and he went back up to the hotel room and that's, and this is exactly the way it plays out here. And it's just so sad. So, so sad. I mean, um, Scooter leaned over to me and he was like, he's going to kill himself. And I'm like, shh, shh. And then it happened or whatever. But then I was like, no. And I I probably would have been Scooter too, because I sensed it. But like, I, I, that added a sense of dread of like oh god are they is he going where i think he's going with this i didn't even well, i don't know i can't believe i didn't think of the jason david frank maybe thankful but i mean it's always it's always hard with suicide on screen i mean i've i've lost friends to it and it, it's very hard yeah. to pull it off without it feeling like it's pandering or i mean drama in general is i mean one of the reasons i think drama is can be one of the hardest ones to pull off is anytime there's a drama about somebody with cancer, I'm always trepidatious. Cause I'm like, well, are you just going to be like, well, dr- cancer is sad. I'm like, yeah, we all know it's sad. Like right. you're just telling right. me something sad or showing me that it's sad. You know, I, I think that's kind of why this scene resonated with me. Cause the fact that it immediately whiplash, I'm like, you don't usually get that much. And that gave me a different perspective to it than you normally would get but yeah oh i can't didn't even think of that really bad timing with especially with how close that was but you know i think one other thing too is that um in in our day and age with social media and and the ability to literally go onto any actor's instagram and tell them that they were like shit if you felt Mm -hmm. like it you know that i think the movie definitely 
sort of punches home the fact that actors are still human beings. Yeah. And even if, even if you, you know, we were just talking about this, about how Quentin Tarantino says, you don't go to Thor to see Chris Hemsworth. You go to Thor to see Thor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't like a movie, why direct your vitriol at a writer or a director or or an actor, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a piece of art. Like exactly, you it's, know, it, at the end of the day, just like fucking relax, right? Yeah, like take a step back and like breathe and realize like why are you getting this angry over something? Because people take a lot of this very personally. I mean, especially with Marvel stuff that becomes their life. And that's, I think there's a part of that passion commentary in here that can even extend to just the audience of a, you take this too seriously. You're forgetting yeah. your own humanity as much as this business was. And maybe some of them were, um, cause man, people it's, or oh, I mean, even this, I mean, I've, I remember, and it's funny because he said he was on Moon Knight then. Hi, Troy. Hi, Landon. But, <laughs> but I remember Ethan Hawke came out and he said, you know, I thought Logan was a really good movie, but I didn't think it was great art or great cinema or whatever. And I love Logan and I would disagree. I thought it was, but I was just like, all right, it's Ethan Hawke's opinion. But there were certain like MCU fans or just Marvel fans that hated this. And I, I knew somebody... Yeah that I know personally that really just like started slagging the guy, not to the point of like, Oh, you should hurt yourself, whatever. But I remember he kept going, Oh, says the guy who was in the purge, which I'm not the biggest fan of the first purge movie, but I'm pretty sure you can find worse films on Ethan Hawke's resume. I think he did that one getaway remake with uh, Selena Gomez, which I never saw, but yeah, or, or just a movie <laughs> called getaway, but it was just weird. But I'm like, why is it? Or again, when, when Martin Scorsese says, Hey, you know, Marvel isn't art. There are times where I might roll my eyes, at certain things like that. Like, Oh, maybe it sounds like, old man yelling at a cloud but i'm not gonna like throw a vitriol at the guy because it's it's good that he has that opinion especially somebody who's in the industry and it it prompts better discussions but even if not like it's not affecting my ability to see any of this stuff or my daily life like if you get too obsessed with that you're it's almost like you're using something as a crutch to ignore your own self now i'm getting eye rolly here with my commentary but to your point like you said you just you need to step back like breathe i mean jake lloyd i think that was the kid's name uh the, the kid who played young anakin skywalker in phantom menace yippee darth vader oh. yippee yeah and like yes that it's, <laughs> I, I blame george lucas more for that bad point more than anything else but that poor kid like he would get so much vitriol because that was the dawning of the internet like he hated acting all this because people were coming on when he was a child at these conventions these grown adults and like saying how they ruined his childhood and all that which by the way if that ruined your childhood your childhood sucked all right i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna ruin your childhood now right. by saying that exactly um, here you go but it's like it's a human being dude calm down it was a kid no less who really more than any other actor has to rely on directors and everyone else to to really guide them yeah <sighs> And this is going to be a terrible segue because I'm about to mention that as pretty as Lee Jun Lee is, I didn't think that she was strong enough to carry that role. I am a fan of Lee Jun Lee's work. As I said, I watched Quantico and Blind Spot. I love it when she comes on my TV screen. I don't know that she sold this role completely beyond just being the exotic looking sexy Asian lesbian. Um, and I'm actually going to agree with you completely. <laughs> and unfortunately, Margot Roby, she is gorgeous. She has energy to burn in this role. I found her limited. Um, 
in some ways. I found uh, shades of Harley Quinn. Maybe this is the danger of when, when, when we, because Margot, you know, she sort of, I mean, came to the pop cultural zeitgeist eye when she became Harley Quinn. And unfortunately, I think I haven't seen enough of her roles where she's not Harley Quinn or not something like this to make a judgment call. I just found her a little limited in this role, although uh, I'm going to liken her. I'm going to get decked by Margot Robbie when I meet her for this, but I'm going to say she reminded me a lot of Elizabeth Berkley in Showgirls in this role in that there is a lot of energy. There is a lot of passion. There is a lot of raging at the world in this role that she does it may not be acting but (laughs) um yeah i i found her a little limited but i appreciated her passion and her energy just like elizabeth berkeley and showgirls i do think she was a little bit better than elizabeth berkeley and showgirls i don't think she was necessarily bad in that role i think they were both also victims of playing a role that almost has to make them limited, especially Margot, because she does show like there's two scenes in this, the one where she has to cry very early on and like she can like, so force it just a, that's fantastic. And then the the highlight of this film, like the standout scene for a lot of people was the when she has to that first set or, that she's on the college film her first talkie and mentioned it earlier where she had to stand on the right spot. And it's just, just really prolonged sequence, but works well because it's not just funny, but it's also showing you, you said the chaos of filmmaking and how talkies and technology was messing with everything. The guy, uh, you know, getting into the heat box that became the sound (laughs) stage and dying. He dies. Jesus. By the way, that was Frederick Kohler who was on Kate and Alley, a TV show that I used to watch all the time. I love that actor. I actually just watched an episode of that over on Halloween just because I was trying no. to watch any any show that had a Halloween episode. So I stumbled upon Kate and Allie, So <laughs> small That's world. Awesome. This, is, this is what happens in October. I just start watching. I'll watch an episode of freaking Madeline that is not targeted towards me because it's a Halloween <laughs> episode. Uh, yes. Anyway, um, but that scene, I thought she showed a really great uh, of showing a nervousness in that. And also in this, not just her, this is that whole sequence again to go back to the joys of this editing the sound design the cinematography i have never felt as anxious during a scene since i saw uncut gems mind you all of uncut gems made me feel anxious and it's incredible yeah, I know, that entire but film that totally. whole scene was the most anxiety ridden yet still funny sequence but to your point i see where you're talking about the limitedness because when it comes to her life crumbling around her she's you know, spending money she doesn't have that's why toby mcguire comes in because they had to pay this guy off because he was the cocaine dealer i believe or some way of sort of that and how she reacts to manny that part it didn't feel it still felt like she was acting and not in how she was acting elsewhere in the movie where that was supposed to be that she's putting on a show i think the idea was she's so desperate that she's still showing her desperation uh, or acting in ex- desperation but it did start to fumble a little bit um, yeah. So I can actually kind of see where you're you're going at, but I do feel that she still showed good amount of range here. Um, and you know what? She might still eventually come into this because to go to back to Brad Pitt, I I'm the same with you. I've always adored him. I think he's a very good, strong presence of acting. The one thing that he's never really been the greatest at, and I remember it really stuck out in Twelve Years a Slave, is some of those more quiet, introspective moments. Sometimes it just he doesn't really 
get that here. I think he finally found it both in that scene that you were talking about watching the people laughing at him and you just seeing his pained expression, but especially when he's talking to the gossip columnist and it's all hitting him the, the reality and he's yes. just more quiet about it. And, and like, I'm like, Oh my God, you just it's taking a very long time for me to at least see this. Uh, well, I guess cure uh, assassination of uh, Jesse James. Yep. Uh, that would probably been the only other time I think he did that really well. So I think he has it in him. So I think we might still get that with Margot Robbie, but she is definitely that victim all now of being like typecast. I mean, we joked about it. <laughs> You're not the only one the trades have every box office report that reported on Amsterdam that, uh, and this, that, oh, she was in Amsterdam, which was this star studded, you know, well-respected director, or at one point, Hollywood it director, 80 million production film that she's kind of the centerpiece to when it tanks. Now it happened again with Babylon also goes to our point where unfortunately I think people are only going to see Margot Robbie or any of these people. If they're in the IPs, like people are going to be ecstatic to see her as Barbie because yeah. that's, you know, seemingly great casting ecstatic to see her returns Harley Quinn. But I think her opening a picture by herself, and this is not just her, this is pretty much every actor. If you weren't somebody like a Brad Pitt, who's obviously struggling or your Julia Roberts, George Clooney or Tom Cruise who had that built in audience. They're stumbling. The rock is having it. He just had it with the black Adam, you know? Yeah. yeah he obviously probably helped Jumanji and the fast and the furious sequels by adding that star power, but it helped his star power because when he gets his own products like black Adam or San Andreas or something, maybe they don't bomb horrifically, but they definitely underperform. By the way, I will forever call it the Black Adam from now on. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back to that scene you were talking about. The, the way that... So after E. Jean, which I think that's what her name was, which, you know, E. Jean, ask E. Jean. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> after the gossip columnist says to her all of that stuff, what I love about that scene, and I don't know if it was by choice, who made this up, if it was Pitts or if it was Shazam's, you know, decision, but... He gets up, he walks away from her, and then he stops like midway in the foyer and his back is still to her and he mumbles, thank you for that. And then leaves. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm like, who was, thought of that? That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, just so powerful. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Now let's, can we talk about, first of all, why did Tobey Maguire show up looking like a reject from Day of the Dead? Like, I do not understand. And then he pulled out the white powder, and I'm like, I turned to Scott, and I was like, is he a vampire? What's happening? He looked like a ventriloquist dummy, came to life, and got addicted to meth. <laughs> yes, he looked like uh, uh, and he, had he, he looked like the dummy from Magic. Yeah, um, and he had you Ethan, can't oh, bag another God, role. That, and, oh, that was creepy. And then, yeah, he had Ethan Suple, or Suple, however you pronounce it. Yes, his heavy, I love which him. I always, yes. always loved him, and I'm always excited to see him now because he's gotten into such tremendous shape. Like, what a transformation. Yeah. Love that guy. And, <laughs> but that scene was so bizarre, and yeah. especially where it goes, I'm like, I'm like, this is a completely different movie. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I don't know if I would have felt that way if it happened earlier. And I know it couldn't have considering the story structure because mm. that getting us to the finale because he's, I guess, the Coke dealer, the drug cartel that, you know, they had to pay back. They're taking the prop money to save uh, Roby's ass. He eventually finds out about it. And that is a one sequence of the, the water dropping on the money. And then he kind of realizes it's fake. Oh, oh God, God, that was good. 
but that was a victim of it was just way too late to go back to that because even though this was still a manic movie in that last hour or last Mm -hmm. half hour it was slowing down more Mm -hmm. once you got even though there's still that mood whiplash after the suicide there was still a needle drop shit changing you now you know that even when this is manic this is the depressing manic this isn't a uh, debauchery you're just kind of loving the excess like wolf of wall street in the beginning it's just like the last act of wolf of wall street where it's like now you're seeing the consequences or you know well i think so going going back to using hollywood legends and dark legends or whatever as the basis of the stories i mean how many how many times have we read imdb parts or or read in books that you know some quote unquote financiers were part of the mob or they were part Mm -hmm. of criminal activity and then you know uh while it's certainly not like schrader's hardcore um you know there are certainly also those tales about actors and actresses that go to hollywood and then they end up in porn or they end up in something seedier so i think that that's that's kind of where this was coming from um but it just it felt too like eight millimeter you know yeah. what i mean well, and like, it's, it also felt again to like the the final clip show it was almost too on the nose because he's taking him down to this dungeon i gotta show you this act and it keeps going down and you're seeing filthier and filthier shit going on snm and all this and then the reveal is this guy that's basically the he's the freak from a carnival he's a strong man that's eating like chickens whole in that and to me that point was hey you know show business is not much different than you know carny business and i'm like "Uh, you're almost a little bit too on the nose with this and it just I, I, I know it's because it was much later into the film, but I also felt that scene dragged. And again, I know it's the point, but you compare it to how you could argue the scene with the sound uh, and meeting your cue and all that, how that dragged. But that created this just a crescendo of anxiety and just maniacal glee and humor and all that. This one, it just tested my patience more than anything. And I went from feeling anxious, like... And it came back, obviously, with uh, discovering the money was fake. But when we were going down to that dungeon, especially after all the shit we saw at the opening, I'm like, this is not, this is kind of tame. Some of this compared to well, true, yeah, <laughs> compared to the shit we just saw in the opening. And then uh, I just thought it was it was too little, too late for that. And I don't, I, I feel that Toby McGuire was probably, you know, maybe they wrote that role already without him and they just thought he'd be a good fit but knowing that he produced this it almost came off of like of course you put yourself in this movie because they did promote that during the trailers so i kind of like in the back of my mind was thinking well when the hell is this coming up because i thought it was another like film set or whatever they were crashing a party i didn't realize it was they're crashing his party and then and when you watch the trailer too because they highlight the yellow teeth in that like you didn't think he was going to be powerful i thought it was some crazy homeless guy coming into (laughs) Uh, yes, yes. I have to say, I did chuckle at the scene where in the beginning he's trying to get that camera and the guy's like, well, a 279 is different from a 278. (laughs) And all I can think about was, do I sound like that sometimes? (laughs) I did get a chuckle and I did kind of think of you, but, but in a loving way, because I'm sure we can all, and you know what? I know I can get that way too, because to uninitiate i mean i know i sound like that when i talk to my friends about motion smoothing and they're just like goes yes. over their head and i'm like i don't know how that's going over your head but even i remember when i saw uh, the rise of skywalker 
It was the first night there's, I always forget it even exists because it's not my go-to theater, but there was a theater that opened in Lancaster that its gimmick was kind of like, oh, you know, you can have beer and all this. And the picture and all that, like they said, was great. But the problem was they didn't close it off well. So you could see where everything got cut off. And it was driving me insane. And I know oh. nobody else in that theater <laughs> yes. probably noticed because they're just like, oh, it's just whatever. But the fact that I could see like there were no borders changing, and I just see uh, it was driving me nuts. And that was the spot where I'm like, I sometimes say I'm not a snob or I don't think I'm as you know sophisticated as I could be in some of these areas. But then shit like that happens. And I'm like, all right, maybe I know a little bit more than I'm letting on. Yeah, I- I'm still wondering why. They made Tobey Maguire look like a dark fiend. I don't know. Yeah. That's, again, so I know weird. excessiveness was probably the point. And maybe this was also based off of a description of some urban legend like you were talking about in the film business. But yeah, it was it was almost too jarring. <laughs> yeah, is is a bit much. But like I said, I, I did enjoy scenes of the of the chaos of Hollywood sets. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that wonderful sequence where Roby arrives on set. And it, it, I mean, it literally is like a battlefield, a literal (laughs) battlefield. Um, And it just, that sequence and some of the other ones are just, like I said, they're magic. Like Chazelle certainly knows what the hell he's doing, but I think he needs some restraint. And that is why, that is why I was thinking to myself, you know, if I were Hollywood executive, I might think about canceling that first look deal because this was just too much. Like somebody, I think somebody should have stepped in and said, this has to go or that has to go or, or hell break it in, break it into two pictures, make it a mini series, do something. Mini series. Definitely. Know. I know it would be a little weird. I guess it wouldn't, but considering it's a f- movie about filmmaking, that's probably why you wanted to keep it as a film, but you can still make that work as a mini series. It probably yeah. would have helped with the flow. And it's kind of funny because as you're saying this, I don't know if he did it intentionally or not, or if he just fell into it, but he's almost, like some of the commentaries making about being too excessive and not, you know, like you said with Brad Pitt, not listening to others and being too headstrong. Is he just doing the same thing now and he's becoming his own cautionary tale without trying to, or is it, or is that the brilliance of this is that he knows this, especially off of first man, because I, unfortunately I think a lot of people and I kind of sometimes forget that was his picture. You think, this is his follow-up to La La Land. And if you take it as that, then holy shit, yeah, it is. But yeah. you see that restraint in First Man. So you almost wonder if this, and who knows, maybe that maybe a studio forced him to do this. Maybe they were like, look, you were non, you were too restrained on First Man and it hurt you. Go crazy. <laughs> I also think this could work on the commentary against any type type of a first look picture or something. I mean, we we've talked about. I believe on the show before, if not definitely in person that sometimes when you get too big of a budget, you lose your creativity because you can just make anything happen when your back yeah. is against the wall. That's where you become your most creative. Uh, that's why, uh, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name here. The director, uh, Don Coscarelli. Um, yeah. That's why he always said he, he didn't want to use his bug of a budget. He'd like the challenge of trying to be creative as, you know, minimalistic as possible. And of course, studios loved it because every single time you come back, like, oh, I brought you back another million or dollars or so. I didn't actually need all right. of this. But exactly. Although this goes back to me saying, you know, is is the medium itself the message? Like mm-hmm. maybe it's all intentional, like the the fantasy aspect of it, everything being chaos, all of it just being chaos. I mean maybe that's a stroke of genius that I'm quite not seeing right now. Like I said, I may regret saying this is a skip. 
Or maybe you're seeing it and you're just thinking it's too on the nose and it's just congratulations. You, you brought up something that we all already acknowledged. So (laughs) what was the point? You know, cause you, you face that anytime you make any kind of art form, but I mean, that's something that I've sometimes I'm struggling with any film on filmmaking. Now I'm starting to drift away from just feeling taken aback by it, but going, well, yeah, of course we love films. That's why we're here. <laughs> you didn't have to tell me, or of course the, the industry shit for me, it just works because I l- loved the art on this display and just how it kind of messed with me every now and then when I thought I knew where it was going. Uh, oh, and as much as I do of Eric Roberts and he is good in this, that's another thing that was probably too on the nose. The dad that's exploiting the daughter. It didn't, really, <laughs> yes. it, it didn't feel as realized or when she discovered, you know, when we discover when she takes Mandy to see that her mother's insane. I'm like, again, it just, it didn't resonate as strongly as I think they thought it was going to, or at least not with me. The only reason right. the, the father stuff resonated is because I love me some Eric Roberts and just, yeah. just can pop up and because it's amazing. He'll do stuff like this and inherit vice. And then next thing you know, he's doing a talking dog or stalked by my doctor 24 this time in space, probably. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's strange. The, the film is sort of full of characters that you really kind of can't get on board with other than, other than say Manny, quite honestly. I mean, even yeah. the jazz singer is like, constantly berating that one guy you're flat you're flat you're always flat like what you you know whatever and then you know the the asian lesbian she she's an opportunist and she throws these elaborate parties just to be seen but then she tries to take advantage of of other women so it's like there's a lot of unlikable characters even even brad pitt even though you you think he would be pretty likable he's an instigator and we see you mentioned olivia wilde that's his first wife he's not taking her seriously and even when he finally does it's he's too self-absorbed even when he's being nice it feels very condescending like when he's nice to me yeah you never feel like he's genuinely the only time i did was when he did call him after he was like on the set like when he was going to become the executive go show him what you're about i'm like oh maybe he did actually care because yeah. up until that point i thought well he doesn't care he's just being condescending i'm like oh well maybe i was a little wrong about this guy sometimes that and doesn't he go through two wives too yeah, does he, he goes go through like, two more wives yeah he goes through like so many of them Catherine uh, watterson is one she yes. was great she was great. Um, and then and then there was like a third one. But yeah. Uh, and it, she was like not very a, brief because she was like a young starlet. Um, very brief. Near the end. Oh, no, 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 no. She was in theater. That was it. Theater. That's what it was. Yeah. And then he does that read down of her. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Where he's Ooh. like, go back to Broadway or whatever, which is interesting because I listened to this interview with Jamie Lee Curtis and Jamie Lee Curtis was talking about how, you know, she's like. Everybody thinks acting is this easy thing that you do, but, you know, do you know about start with a cheat, start here, hit your marks, do this, do that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more that goes into like acting um, than, than just, you know, Hey, I'm going to show up and pretend on a set or what have you. But, but all of this to bring it back to say that when you're on stage for theater, it's so in the moment because you're not going to get another take. Like the line has to be right, like right then and there. And there's something definitely very exhilarating and electric about that, but you also need to be a little bigger. And so in some ways, silent films, like you talked about before, with the body language and having to convey through physicality is in a way kind of like theater. And every acting coach I've ever talked to has been like, you can't do in theater 
on television or movies because mm-hmm. it's it's smaller because the camera is right there your actions and your emotions they have to be smaller yeah they gotta um, be quieter you can't play to the back because there is no back so when you when you get an actor like jim carrey who is playing to the back right it either works or it doesn't work <laughs> he's right? playing to the back so, of a theater like five miles down the road <laughs> like yeah in new zealand he's uh <laughs> he's certainly projecting any other thoughts? I don't think so. I think we did hit everything. <laughs> I was afraid we were going to hit the Tobey Maguire scene because we kept hinting at it. And we didn't get back to it, uh, which, again, could be a flaw of the film, could be part of its genius that there's just so much you're forgetting about. Um, yeah. But yeah, I am very curious to revisit this because to your point, you might come around and think this was great. And that's why I love art. I might do the opposite. I might come around and go, you know what? Now that, you know, that the honeymoon is over and i'm like analyzing this a little bit more and you know getting more comfortable with it i'm realizing this isn't as wonderful as i thought it was or it wasn't as enchanting or i put a little bit too much into uh, you know what i thought was ingenious about it but since you and i have both only saw this one time we can only go off of our initial reactions and a few days later and i i was pretty i don't want to say blown away is a little bit too strong but blown away considering i was trepidatious going into this and it ended up not being as pat and as glib as i expected it to be even though it has those moments it was a lot more creative and clever about everything and also heartbreaking i was not expecting the drama to connect as well as it did i yeah so it's it's still a solid watch for me unfortunately it's a little too excessively schizophrenic for my taste um so uh regrettably because i do think damien chazelle is very promising as a director and and you know he's through his career that you know i don't know i very few missteps up until now so i think that's something to say mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but unfortunately it's a skip for me and like i said maybe in the future i'll come around to this but Troy and Brad, bring us back. (laughs) Troy and Brad, when you do this for your prestige month next next year, uh, please bring (laughs) us back on. We're just scheduling. We're scheduling their show for them now. They don't get a say in this anymore. Right? Yeah, exactly. We're scheduling this for early December of next year. (laughs) 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 All righty. Well, um, we talked about. Uh, we brought up Jason David Frank. And so obviously with the holidays, we just want all of you to know that sometimes the holidays can be tough and people with mental illness or even people have suffered loss. So for example, my father passed away on December 28th of 2019. And so I hate December, fucking hate it. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, holidays can be a tough time. And if you are having those kinds of thoughts, there is definitely the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can reach them at 1-800-273-TALK. Or in most states, if you pick up the phone and dial 988, you'll be connected to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Or you can reach out, reach out to anybody, somebody, but don't go through it alone. You're not alone. And those thoughts uh, do not make you weak and getting help definitely does not make you weak. It is one of the strongest things you will ever do. So like, just never feel that you're alone. There's always somebody out there to help. And, and again, never, never feel hopeless either, because I think that's, that's what 
that's what starts it, you know, mm -hmm. and you're not your thoughts and you, you know, your thoughts can just kind of carry away and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but there is. So we do hope obviously that you do have had a happy holiday. We are recording this the day after Christmas, and obviously we're heading into the new year, 2023. Oh, shit. This uh, is our last episode of 2022. <laughs> How did I not? Is it? Oh, to... shit. It is. Oh, my God. You're right. That up. <laughs> Why did I think there was going to be another one? No, I there's not going to be another one. There's no, Holy shit. There's no concept of time. Uh, one, <laughs> no, we're older, but two, pandemic has killed any concept of time I have. No, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. So this would be our last episode of 2022. We humbly started in August. Yeah. Uh, we hope to keep going. Hopefully next year we'll be still around doing oh, this. Definitely. And all of that obviously is because of you, friends and listeners. So you can write us, let us know your thoughts about movies, contact us, connect with us. You can email us at watchskipplus, all spelled out, no punctuation at gmail.com. You can find us at our homepage, anchor.fm backslash watch hyphen skip. There's even a message me button where you can record a voicemail that we can play on the air and answer if you have a question or even a comment. And wherever you get your podcasts, you can go to our Anchor website and you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher Box, all those other places that you get your pods. And we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Justin? Well... We hope that you have all enjoyed this year with us. We hope that you, in 2023, never skip. You always listen, and that you remember that you are the plus. Woo! Shazam! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs>